0: Hello and welcome to Lee Child's Book of the Year podcast in association with Jack Reacher Coffee, a tested (laughs) blend available from Baltimore Tea and Coffee Online. With me, as always, is uh, my partner in crime, Matt Williams, over in London. Hello, Matt. How are you?
1: Hello, Lee. Now, I, well, the first thing we need to say, apart from this amazing new direction for this podcast, which I, for one, very much welcome, um, is to say, is, is that a real brand of coffee? Is there is there actually a Jack Reacher brand of coffee?
0: Oh, there is, yeah. It is, uh, it is a... Really nice cup of coffee, and uh, we were contacted by these uh, roasters in Baltimore, Maryland, and they wanted to do it, and we, we said, why not? And we take a royalty on it, and um, it's good coffee and a nice little earner. But first, we should explain to the listeners, um, you know, I love Simon Mayo. Love him. Yes. Absolutely lo- love Simon. Nicest guy. And good at so many things. Uh, Yeah, so many
1: things. Yeah.
0: Great radio DJ, which I have to say right at the beginning here is a lot harder than people think. Before I was a writer, I worked in live television and there is nothing harder than live media and nothing harder than appearing to be all relaxed and casual on the air. Uh, It's a bit like in our field of writing. Um, Somebody once said, easy reading is hard writing. And it's kind of like that on the air. And so Simon has always been a great radio DJ, but then he's also a great children's author. And now we're finding out he's a great grown up author. And whereas any one of those skills I admire very much and um, congratulate him for any one of them, but all of them together, that's a bit much, isn't it? It It is too much. It is, and I'm not the sort of guy who wants to stop somebody from doing something. If you want to do four or five things at once, knock yourself out. But uh, so I wouldn't regulate it in any way. But I think the rest of us have got to step up. And Quite so right. Simon is out, and uh, so I'm doing a podcast now. This Co- is it.
1: correct. And and I, for one, welcome our new Lee Child overlords. I have to say, this is, (laughs) uh, as in in the words of Derek Smalls, "I hope you like our new direction." Uh, This podcast very much the Lee Child owning it from day one. Is what, uh, frankly, we've all, be, all we've been working for, working towards for the last two years, is is for Lee to finally step into those shoes.
0: And it's great for me. I'm just so sorry that we're not all together in that um, that lovely room that you have in London, where yeah, yeah, I've done it before. Absolutely. For the people that uh, are listening, it's normally done from this really cool place. Where is it? King's cross, you know, some very cool upcoming hip hipster area. It's like, it's like me going to Brooklyn and (laughs) (laughs) seeing all those people. Uh, And it's, it's a cafe as well. It's like this back room. It is. Cafe. It is. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, let's, let's be clear. We'd much rather be in that room. I'm at the moment looking in... where well, I'm in my loft looking out over North London. What are you looking out over right now? What, what, what's the view that if we were sat next to you right now, what would we see?
0: I'm in uh, Wyoming, which is um, a huge state in the West of America. And look, I'm looking out my window right now and I can see probably... 40 or 50 miles to the horizon, and I can see one dirt road, and apart from that, no man-made thing whatsoever. Wyoming is the most unbelievable place. It is physically larger than the United Kingdom.
1: Wow, it has, really? Yeah, wow. A,
0: it's one of those big square states out in the West, you know, where in the East, the states are all funny shapes because they kind of evolved naturally. Then came the expansion to the West. And some of the states, they just drew big squares on the map. And Wyoming is one of them. Physically larger than the UK, with way less than one hundredth of the population. It's like imagining the, the population of Leicester, thinly spread over the whole of the UK. So there is nobody here. It is the most lonely and isolated place that I, uh, that I can imagine. And I came here... Uh, just to experience it really because New York City is so densely populated as you know and this is the ultimate contrast Um, so that's why I have this place. But it has been amazing for the lockdown, obviously, because it's always lockdown. You never see anybody. <laughs> so there's been no change at all
1: for you for the last time? No, few literally
0: not. It, it's the most bizarre feeling. I'm sitting here the same as normal, and something is happening out there in the world, and I, I can't see it, and I don't know what's going on.
1: Excellent stuff. Well, I, I think we should crack on, Lee. And who, who have you chosen in this new podcast, the Lee Child Book of the Year podcast? Who have you chosen as your first guest?
0: Well, I've, obviously, I had a wide range of choices, and yeah. um, I went for somebody that I think we should, uh, we should have on definitely, just as a kind of a way of underlining the, the passing of the, of, of the baton. Uh, yeah. So my, yeah. my first guest is, uh, uh, amongst other things, a fabulous author with a new book out this month. Please welcome Simon Mayo. Hello, Lee. Hello,
1: Matt. This Hello. is the weirdest thing this is the weirdest thing I've ever done in my life isn't it yeah
0: you, you yeah you think you're a guest on your own podcast, but uh, yeah there's been a coup d'etat
2: <laughs> yeah well this is uh, this is some coup i'm all, it's kind of a coup I'm in favor of
0: so the first thing I need to ask you is um and, and we're all getting we're all getting the, the the sort of lockdown question but specifically as a writer and a an entertainer and a broadcaster, specifically as somebody who needs to be in contact with um, the mainstream and the ongoing stuff. How, how has lockdown been for you? What have you learned? What have you done? Uh, has it been fun or what?
2: Um well it's radio is is a very nimble so the radio side first of all the radio thing has been very nimble because the technology has moved so fast that I've been I'm sitting in my spare room uh, in the house which I where I've been since March so it's been a long long time and part part of me really likes it because radio is very intimate a medium. The podcast is even more intimate because you choose the time that you listen to it, and radio is all about one-to-one communication. And it's about you know it starts off with a guy in his in his bedroom or a woman in her bedroom making tapes back in the day and just trying to create some kind of. Uh, Radio Magic. That's exactly where it's ended up. So in terms, I don't, and I never like having other people in the studio. With apologies to Matt and everyone else who I've always worked with, I always, I always quite enjoy just being in the being in the studio with with some music and just talking to the listener because it is that one to one medium. So the radio, so the radio thing is is fine. I miss seeing people uh, in the office, but now I'm going to look at them and think whether they're germy or not, you know, so I'm not quite yeah. sure I'm going to go in. <laughs> um, as, and as, uh, as far as the writing is concerned, I've found it quite, I think I've found it very difficult. I thought I'd find it easy or easier because I've got more time because I'm not doing any commuting and I don't go to the gym, you know, I don't go out, I don't see people. But actually I've found that, I've actually found it quite difficult to get any kind of coherent uh, thought t- together. I mean, I'm twenty thousand words into a new story, but it's not. It doesn't feel like very much,
0: right? I was interested in what you said about uh, the one to one for the radio. Um, in in the normal run of things, do you do you think of it as literally one to one? It's you and one specific listener. Is that an advantage in in communicating?
2: It, it's an it's an advantage. Yeah, I mean, yes and no is the answer. The the no bit is the fact that you have to be aware. One, one of the things that annoys me the most listening to all kinds of radio uh, in this country is when they talk about... They would say, oh, and we've got this email from someone in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, and you think, well, hang on a second. You'd never say Hastings, England. So can we just s- assume that we're kind of local radio for everybody? So, yeah. uh, so I try and... Uh, you ha- I'm aware of the fact that we're live in Belfast and that we're live on the Scottish borders and we're live in Cardiff and in Southampton and in Cornwall and in London. So to that extent, you're aware that it's not one-to-one, but I think you should always use, you know, you singular and you should always go for the how are you approach. The friend on the radio is always my favourite kind of presenter. Um, so I I think that one, I think there is a literal one-to-one whilst all, always sort of, it's a contradiction, but being aware of the fact that you're talking potentially to millions of people in the UK and and overseas as well.
0: And what do you do about it as a writer? Uh, because obviously our, our aim is to have millions of readers um, and you can't really contemplate that. You know, you can't even contemplate a few thousand readers. I, I figured out that when you start writing, the the first significant... Milestone is when somebody who is not your mother reads your book and then that's an audience of one. You've got your audience. Then you've got an audience of two and then maybe 200 and then maybe 2,000. And if you get to 2,000, that's already a big number. If you wanted to take each of those readers out for dinner to say thank you, and if you did it every single night of your life, it would take you over five years to do that with... um, with two thousand readers, so once you get beyond that, it's a number too big to really contemplate. So it has to be one to one, don't you think? Yes,
2: and and you can't, you can't even begin to uh, write for all those people. So you you know if you if you're aware of everyone's different taste and everyone's uh, different habit and the fact that they'll be reading it in at different times and in different places, so you, you drive drive you absolutely crazy. So I think I'm just writing. I don't know. I think I'm writing a story for myself, Lee. I think I've exactly. always done. Yeah. Even, you know, I think the ch- You know, the kids' books, the the itch books to start with. I think that. Uh, I mean, I think I wrote them for me. So I'm hoping that there are enough people who think of it in the same way.
0: I would. Uh, I would give the same answer. Yeah, that you. It's ultimately writing for yourself, and that's the only way to do it. Because if you were to write, even for somebody you know really well, you're always second-guessing. Uh, what do they want? What should I put in? Uh, the only way of doing it is to say, this is what I want to do. And then you just hope to do it really well and cross your fingers that somebody else will like it. Um, seems to be working for you in two, two whole separate genres.
2: Well... Yes, I mean that's very nice of you to say. So <laughs> thank
1: you. I don't, I don't that feel as though I'm been.
2: approaching. It. Uh, yeah, I don't feel as though so, I'm writing with it with a certain with the same kind of um, confidence uh, and style that you do, because um, I still think as though I'm. Uh, I mean, I've only been writing since I since I turned fifty. So I kind of feel as though I'm still a novice at this thing and and trying to trying to learn fast. But that's you know. Well, yeah, um, yeah
0: you have to because I think that actually writing is brilliant for that because. Not only can you do it when you turn 50, but in a way you should wait until you turn 50 or thereabouts because do you know enough before that? You know, is, is the gas tank full yet? Um, sure, yeah. I, I've read lots, well, when I say lots, maybe six novels that were written by sort of 18-year-olds or 20-year-olds, you know, undergraduates at Oxford or something. And... Uh, they are always very proficient, but you get the feeling that they're sort of regurgitated parodies almost or pastiches of things that they've read that they don't really have the experience yet.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I entirely agree, obviously, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the last thing you want is a new kid on the block aged 20 to come along and be brilliant at everything. No, I, I, I would I, hate I, that. I, I, yeah, well, I would hate that, and I. But I think I only. I, I wouldn't have been able to write a book at thirty or at forty. I think the only reason that I started writing was because I'd spent many, many years at Five Live, and we'd interviewed two new authors every week for about eight years. And so I read and I read and I read and I read. And then when that stopped, I suddenly thought, "Oh, there's an idea. Why don't I do that?" And I so I so I tried to write it, and I was just really writing it for my for my son who was ten, but is now. Shouting in the bedroom next to me because he's put he's putting together a podcast of his own. So I don't really like the sound of that. To be
0: perfectly honest, but um. I can hear my wife and daughter talking in the kitchen. Our daughter's with us during uh, you know this isolation, and she's doing the shopping for us because she thinks that we're elderly and vulnerable. <laughs> <laughs> How dare so she's you.
1: she's going out and doing the shopping for you. She's not just ordering it for you.
0: Yes yeah, she goes out and uh, she i mean she does not put on a hazmat suit, but it is um, close <laughs> to that you know because whatever you've got in in Britain and London and so on uh, it is chaos here uh, the East Coast has bu- buckled down pretty good and is doing what they should do but out west in in the in the low population areas, in the Trump areas, if you want to put it like that. It is just nuts. So yeah, our daughter masks up, suits up, wears gloves, goes to get the shopping. And um, we're really grateful for that, you know, on one level and on another level, I'm thinking, yeah, why not? There's an old expression in Yorkshire that I love, why buy a dog and bark yourself?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. That's fair enough. Right, I, I think, I, I think it's time we got down to the book itself. Knife Edge is the is the title, Simon. Now, I, normally at this point, I would describe the front cover, but the front, the, the book that I've got is a proof, so it's obviously it's one that uh, was sent out to reviewers and isn't the, the the final one that you will see. In it's uh, not in far off. It's, they've
2: changed the colours a little bit, but it's still that. Okay, same well,
1: why don't I'm assuming you've got the real cover in front of you. So, why don't you describe what that the front cover that people will see in the bookshops that will be sort of flying off the shelves? What, what, and it's a great cover. and I know Lee's a big fan of it as well. Uh, so, d- just describe that front cover for us.
2: Well, it's uh, it's got my name in orange type at the top. It says Knife Edge. It's got a, a what well, looks like a very outdated street scene with people standing way too close to <laughs> yeah, each other. Yeah. No one's wearing a mask or anything mm-hmm. like that. Uh, but it's a crowded scene. It could be a shopping centre. It could be a bus station. It could be a train station. Uh, people milling about. And there's one guy in the middle with an orange. So it's basically black and grey. And there's one guy in the middle with an orange T-shirt. It's the only colour. He's got a rucksack. And underneath that it says, you never know where danger will come from. Although, as a number of people have said online, presumably it's the guy in the or- with the orange T-shirt and the rucksack. <laughs> yeah.
0: um, it is a great know. cover. I mean, I saw the early version and... Uh, uh, a mutual friend, Larry Finlay, who is the uh, publisher, uh, showed it to me and said, what do you think? And I thought it was a wonderful, great cover. But the thing that sticks in my mind related to the cover is uh, the opening sequences. I mean, it's a devastating opening sequence, the first um, many pages. But they call to mind... A visual image to me, and I'm, I'm not saying this was written for a screenplay or anything like that, because that's always a disaster. If, if you have one eye on your book being a movie or a TV series, mm-hmm. then you're going to produce a bad book and a bad screenplay. So I'm not saying you did that, but it's so visual at the beginning. Um, you can just imagine Houston Station at rush hour, a head on telephoto shot of those tens of thousands of people surging towards you. Um, and it's so nostalgic now, in a way. It makes you wonder: uh, will we ever see that again? I mean, or it may, actually, it makes you feel what a strange thing it was that we behaved in that way.
2: Yeah, I mean, I do. Th- I mean, I do think that the uh, there there are quite a few crowd scenes in the book, and I'm sure you know. And I'm, I'm asking this to authors all the time on the occasion that I have a podcast, and I'm not. Uh, <laughs> and it's, and it's my, but but I but I have this genuine concern because obviously I wrote it uh, about a year ago, and crowd scenes were fine, train scenes were fine, there's a uh, church scenes, uh, um, wherever, theatre scenes, pub scenes, uh, they all now feel a little bit strange. So I'm I'm hoping that people will read this and feel nostalgic for uh, for those times where you didn't look too closely at who was standing right next to you.
0: I'm sure they will. I, I mean, that is the function of fiction, after all, is to give ourselves what we're not getting in real life. And so I think, yeah, absolutely, people are going to relish the idea that life was normal. And there are fantastic office scenes in it as well. I mean, real high-pressure scenes in the, in the journalist's office where you can just feel that, feel that atmosphere of colleagues at work. Uh, again, I think people are totally missing that and we'll want to get back to it.
1: I, I think in that case we need. To, we've we've sort of alluded a little to what is going on. There's clearly something. Th- there's danger coming from uh, within these crowds, and we've mentioned Euston Station. But Simon, tell us, tell us what this. T- 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 take us into the world where this where th- this book inhabits. Of what is going on? Well, uh, right
2: at the very beginning, the opening scenes that Lee is talking about uh, concern seven. Murders, which happen uh, in the space of half an hour in one rush hour, seven separate attacks, seven uh, separate people uh, murdered. Uh, Fami Madden is our central character. She's a journalist. she works for a big news agency and she's going to work and it's she, her, her role is slot. that's it, it's a it's a position which basically means she's news editor. So she's in charge of the UK desk. So it's her job to sort of sift and taste the stories as they come in. Decide which ones uh, they're going to uh, put out on the news wires, and it has, to, and then it will have her news agency stamp on it, so it says this is true and it happened. Obviously, based on sort of Bloomberg, Reuters, that kind of uh, mm. uh, that kind of idea. And bit by bit, these seven murders come in. She's reporting on them. She's snapping these stories. They're getting visual pictures from Sky, from Al Jazeera, from uh, from the BBC, and so she's calling to her different journalists, and they're gradually piecing together a story and they realize that this is breaking news and it's going to be a very big story and then they realize they get pictures of the the, the first victim and fami starts to realize that she knows the people who have been killed in fact not only does she know them but they sit next to her and they are this news agency's uh, investigations team every one of them has been killed um and that, so that's, that's the opening sequence which Lee was talking about. And then she decides that she's going to go well, she decides two things. One, she's going to quit because she's kind of had enough with the, the, the bigger news organisation and the, the, the management changes and everything, she's had enough with that. But then when seven of her colleagues are killed, she thinks, okay, I, I'm out of this. So she decides to go to all seven funerals, uh, which take their toll on her. And at the end of the seventh funeral... There is a uh, there is a, which is in a small English village called Ashby St Ledgers. She goes to that, and there is a, a a typewritten note on an old typewriter, which is under the windscreen wiper of her car, and uh, the and she opens it. It's for her, and it it just says, "You don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows," and because she's not quite old enough to remember the song that it comes from, she's not quite sure uh, where it is and what it means, but obviously there is someone is trying to get a message to her. She doesn't know whether she's being threatened. She doesn't know if she's going to be the next victim or if someone is trying to uh, tell her something anyway. So she decides that she wants to, even though she's resigned as a journalist, she wants to find out what's happened to her colleagues and why. That's basically and it. And
0: great, oh my God, moment when Femi realises the identity of the victims. Uh, you know, that is a sort of supercharging at the beginning of the book that then propels it. It's intensely personal, obviously. And uh, the chase is therefore invested with that much more emotional freight. And it works just really well. Um, how well do you know the world of journalists like that? Is, that, is this imagined or is it part, well, the- part of the contact?
2: The original idea was it was going to be it was always going to be a newsroom but it was going to be a television or radio newsroom and then at the suggestion of my rather brilliant editor Bill Scott Carr he said it would have more international heft if if you put it in a news agency uh, because news agencies work across the world and they have reporters across the world so why don't you do that so uh, and of course when editors say things like that Annoyingly, they usually write. So, uh, so I, so I changed it to the news agency, and I got in touch with uh, someone at Reuters, and I went over to the Reuters building and watched uh, what happened there and how they put stories together there. And the 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 news agency room that Femi works in is uh, is sort of based on, on on that experience. So it it's it, I mean it's 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 very different um, because they don't have the deadlines that are. That a, a radio newsroom would have, or a TV newsroom would have, with a bulletin that goes out either on the hour or on the half hour. So it f- so it felt very different, but it was. But their job is the same, and that is to tell the story, and to tell the truth, and to get the truth out there. And that what they say matters.
0: Uh, exactly. And it, I got the very strong impression that it, it, they play a, a, a very important role in that they. They stamp the story as approved or true and it gives it extra credibility. So that's an agency that is really important right now. Um, I mean, I'm viewing it through the American lens where virtually nothing in the media is true. I mean, it's just one one shade of propaganda versus another. And it's very hard to to rely on anything. And I think what you're saying is that these agencies have a kind of... Um, function of being an arbiter uh, saying yeah pay attention to this or no don't pay attention to that
2: yes i mean i, I do think i do think they re- they really matter i mean obviously it's informed by the fact so when i was at five live which is uh where i uh, and where matt was so it's where matt was for uh, for for a long time but when you work on a regular basis i mean my com- my program was more conversational so we did books and uh and we did uh, Parliament and we did Wimbledon. So whatever was happening, it was kind of news and arts. But when when you do the news and when you're speaking to brilliant journalists like um, Alan Little, John Sopel, John Simpson, Danny Shaw, Bridget Kendall, Andrew Marr, people like that, they you kind of think these words matter. And so Femi, when, the thing that she does best, she says in the book, you know, we, we hear her thinking she, she hasn't been a great mother. She hasn't been a great wife, but she is a good journalist she when she's sitting in the chair in front of the computer screens at the news agency and she's slot and she's running the ship she's captain of the ship she knows what she's doing and she's really good at it and and when the news agency which which i call ips when they when they put their stamp on it it says to the world you can trust us this really happened
0: Exactly, so you know I, i've been a Booker Prize judge this year, yeah. so I, I'm, I'm into deep structure and deep metaphor and all that kind of thing so this the story about the, the murdered journalists uh, obviously propels the thriller, but is there a larger message there that somehow truth is under assault and uh, uh, physical and verbal attacks on on journalists will eventually lead to this situation
2: i I think yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's a nagging fear about that in the background. I think I didn't spend too much time thinking about that because I was trying to get all the everything else working. Um, I think it was I think the 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 contemporary take. If um, I mean, on, on the one hand, the, the story as I've described is quite you, you know you could have said it fifty years ago, but some of the um, should we say some of the ne'er do wells uh, in the in the book. Uh, do feel as though post-Brexit Britain is more vulnerable than it used to be, that it is a hollowed-out... I think one of them says Britain is a hollowed-out country. Um, and so therefore their, what they're planning will resonate more. So if, if it has a contemporary feel or a contemporary take, I think it's, it's more in that direction.
1: There's something really interesting you've, you've just said now, where you said that you're, you're in the States, obviously, and <clears throat> you don't feel you can trust... The news that you're being that you're being given, be that you, you feel that it's different shades of propaganda, and I think that is that's a central element to this book is if you can't tr- if you decide that you can't trust any news then your country is in a very, very dangerous position. And I think, um, when, so when Simon, in his book, you've got this agency which uh, is has very much like other um, newspapers, they've had to lose members of staff. And, uh, you know, in the real world now, obviously this book was written before the coronavirus hit, but in the real world now you're getting news operations which are being stripped because... The, those organisations are losing money hand over fist because of the um, coronavirus. You've had this, there are stories even this afternoon of um, the Guardian or fears that the Guardian might have to lose yet more jobs, and it 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 strikes at that for what for me is is a is a central part of any country, and and the and the the well being of that country, which is a. Um, Strongly performing media, a strongly performing um, journalism at the core of it, and it felt to me that the, I don't know whether Simon, you had that in your head when you were writing, and obviously you couldn't have known what was coming up. But as you say, you know, the, you refer to Brexit within there, and you refer to what's going on over uh, over in um, America as well was that something that was in your mind as to what is happening to news media in both of these countries I think I think that's in the background but I think the in in the way that it impacted
2: the story is mainly that the journalist is my hero I think mm. I think that I think that's that's the that's the start of it is that um they would I mean most of the journalists I know would would, would laugh and scoff uh, at that point and use a bad language, which this book I have to say is full of i've had to explain to my mother yeah. that journalists swear a lot, and that 's why uh, it's it's curse heavy um, but I think I mentioned some of the great journalists that that I worked alongside when I was at, uh, when I was at five live but I, um, I think it was therefore inevitable that when a journalist steps up that these that, that Instinctively, I'm I'm on their side, and that when they're te- and that they are devoted to telling the story correctly, and uh, and and to and to get that story out, and of course because it's personal as Lee's mentioned, you know, it's driven by the fact that their stories and their their personal lives are incredibly mixed up. I should say actually that originally um, the character of Femi was going to be uh, male, and. Uh, again, this is where um, my agent. <laughs> he, so, th- so there are two. Ma- so there are two main characters, one of which I can tell you about, which is mm, Amy, and yeah, the other yeah. main character that I can't really tell you about. However, um, uh, the male female position was originally the other way around, and then oh really? I swop- yeah, and then I swapped it, and it di- and it works, and it you know it did work straight away. Um, the Lee Child influence. I don't know if you, I'm sure you spotted it all over. Um, all over. In fact, there are two ways that I can I can say that Lee's influences on this book. One is quite specific, uh, and that is I when I was writing this book, I think I just finished night school, Lee, and you you have a character in there who you refer to as the American, and we under and then so it's a mystery as to who the American is, and then we find out later on who the American is. So, the, so the, the male character is, is referred to as the student. And when I, and, and y- your trick of just calling your character the American is the reason why the student is referred to as the student. The other, <laughs> I, I really, really shouldn't say tell you this, but the other main influence of Lee Child in this book is the fact that Lee, as has, he said many times before, in in your first book, Lee, you took you took revenge on um, some of the people who got rid of you. Is that right?
0: Yeah, you bet.
2: So, so uh, oh so, boy, so, go yeah. on. But, but, no, so all I'm saying is that the the role of the editor ah. is obviously to to change a few things around. But in the early draft. Uh, of this book, I took revenge on some uh, on some people who had, uh,
0: who
2: had in the last couple of years been less than uh, less than kind so when i was when I was doing those early chapters, it was actually far more fulfilling uh, than, than the current version so so the version that we 're looking at now is the right version is the correct version, but in its earliest form was slightly more
0: vindictive. The satisfaction in that is tremendous. And, uh, and with me, I really pushed it. I, I, I made them exact physical replicas based on a theory that I had called the small dick defense. <laughs> <laughs> so I figured that nobody, nobody is going to start a lawsuit and get up in court and say, you know that lying, cheating, backstabbing weasel on page 100? That's me. Nobody's going to do that. Yeah, well, <laughs> well,
2: I don't think anyone's going is- to do that because you know, I did, I, you know, I changed it all because obviously that's the sensible thing to do. But it was, you know, it's quite fun uh, and it, it felt artistically, creatively,
0: you know? Definitely, and and there is there is actually a third connection to me in this book that I'll talk about in, in a minute. But just to uh, just to recap, so we don't get too far ahead of ourselves, this is exactly the kind of book that is so great because it does stimulate all these these discussions that we've just had in the last ten minutes. So, you know, it makes you think, but. Let's just re-emphasize this is not some weighty tome that is um, dense and difficult to read. This is a rip-roaring, high-paced thriller that is uh, just enjoyable from, and terrifying, actually. From And it gets worse. It gets more terrifying. Uh, you know, you start <laughs> out with a whole bunch of murders and then it gets worse. Uh, <laughs> it, it is a ride. It, it really is. But the, the third connection to me, it, and I would love to know why this is it ends up in Coventry Cathedral. And um, I was born in Coventry uh, in the in the 1950s, and Coventry was still basically a ruin back then. Um, and uh, life was so boring that the only thing to do on a Saturday was we would go to the swimming bath and swim for a bit, and then we would walk home through the town center to watch the new cathedral being built. Uh, yeah. As a little kid, as a sort of two or three-year-old, I, I saw it being built from the foundations upwards, and uh, and now, of course, it's a venerable monument. And um, the climactic scenes in the book take us there. Uh, why? Why that choice? I mean, it, well, it's Coventry is generally overlooked, and I, I'm racking my brains, but I don't think I've read a book that has a climax actually inside the cathedral. No. <laughs>
2: Uh, no, well, the specific reason is I got my degree there, so I was at Warwick University, and all the degree ceremonies at the time uh, took place in Coventry Cathedral, and uh, many people will have will have been there. And if you haven't, I thoroughly recommend going because it's a it's it's a it has an amazing story uh, uh, of its own, and it has the largest tapestry in the whole of Europe um, at the end, which is of uh, an image of Christ on uh, on his throne, and there was a particular image which I worked back from really which is the which is an image which involves the tapestry which I won't explain too much because it'll 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 spoil the moment but it was um uh it was I started from that for, for some reason I had an image of that tapestry and events happening in front of that tapestry and thought okay I quite like those big set pieces in big buildings um I think Coventry is famous enough because of what's happened there over the years, and I think the cathedral is uh, is iconic. Uh, and I went up there and spent some time sitting in the pews and looking around and taking some photographs and thinking I know looking at the clergy and thinking you're not gonna like what I write, what I'm about to write. And and I, I have actually apologized to them in the this is a kind of an afterword <laughs> thing in which I do talk about the incredible work that they've done about reconciliation and peace, which they have which have taken they've taken on as their mission uh, in life. And that 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 mission is not really very well represented by the by what I uh, have happened
0: um in, in Coventry Cathedral, that's but true. so I worked so back not, from there. Really, not much reconciliation in that end scene. I must admit, <laughs> no,
1: there's not. No, no.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's true. Well, that's true. So that is that is that is the
2: that is the other uh, connection. But you know, let uh, hopefully there'll be more people. This is the way I'm justifying it to myself: is that as a result of the book, more people will go to Coventry Cathedral, will sit in the pews, and marvel at the at the building and understand more of their work. And I'm hoping my th- th- the clergy there will will buy that.
1: Definitely, I I absolutely agree with Lee that it's a that this is just a rip roaring thriller. It's um so much fun. There are so many, and I'm sure Lee has had the same experience in that uh, there are so many books I've read which describe themselves as thrillers and are far from thrilling. Uh, so when a book is a thriller and it really is a thriller, then then you cling onto it. And I remember. Um, I mean the, the the opening chapter is two pages long and there are seven people dead at the end of it and I remember reading that on the <laughs> tube I think we would just done our last interview before the lockdown and I was on the tube reading it and I think I texted you when I got out the other end so and there was quite a few expletives in my in my text basically saying oh my goodness what a start and and so and and, and the the thriller keeps going what I am most intrigued about what you've just said, Simon, about you know, obviously a bit of a joke that there was uh, the the sort of the vindictive cut of the book that was the initial draft before you sort of changed things around a little. I think I, I've so I've uh, my, my son really loved your Itch books. Uh, both of us read uh, Blame, and and I've told you before that Mad Blood was was my favourite book of twenty eighteen when that came out. When I read this. The overwhelming sense I got, well, there, there are two things that came out. One was this was, uh, it felt to me like your most personal of the books that I've read of yours. The other was that there was definitely, I felt, an undertone of anger. And I wonder whether that was just me, um, whether I was just picking up on something that wasn't there. But I'd, I'd be intrigued. Is it, I, I, am I picking up on something there or, or have I just imagined it? um
2: uh, that, that, that's quite interesting I sometimes think that um I'm not aware of uh some of the things I'm writing about I mean th- it, it is it is an angry book in as much as uh what happens is outrageous there is a level of uh threat which runs throughout the book which um I think uh I mean it feels very different the world that we live in now but uh it it's a low-tech threat because there are I basically wanted to, I was thinking it would be interesting to write a spy book, but I wanted to write a low-tech spy book. And one of the uh, conversations which did steer it was a conversation I had with Gordon Carrera, who's the BBC's security correspondent, who was mm-hmm. talking, he was telling me about, you know, if, if you're high-tech uh, and you're financed by a foreign government, then you can be involved in espionage and, you know, encryption and so on. But the most scary thing, and that the authorities find impossible to to, to find is if you go off grid there you know you don't have a manifesto you don't have a website you're not there isn't a newspaper you haven't got a mobile phone you haven't got a computer how does anyone find those guys and uh, gordon said that the russians have actually start this is genuinely true have started using um invisible ink they have used invisible ink in wow. the last few years i think he well, wow, that that's really invisible ink. So um, there's an invisible <laughs> ink section in, uh, in in this book, which is kind of which came from the conversation that Gordon had. But I feel as I need to see when people go, no one is using invisible ink. They you know they actually <laughs> they, they they genuinely are. I suppose it is. Um, I hadn't really thought of it as a personal book, but I guess all books are sort of personal in that respect. Um, I liked the the relation the bit that surprised me was the relationship between famie and her daughter who's 20 years old who's called charlie who goes to university i hadn't intended for charlie to be such an important character but then when she turned up i thought oh this is you know this is surprising i know this is what lee does all the time he just writes and sees what happens well that's the bit in the book that where I just started and found out that actually that bit i quite liked and so carried on doing more of that and because it's because it's journalism and um, that that bit is, I guess, is is close to where I've been, and I'm still working at Five Life for the film show. So that's still part of, still part of my life. But it's, I, I will think on that, Matt, because you may well be right. It's just I haven't actually unpacked that.
0: I'd love it when people turn up, and when Charlie turned up. Charlie is great. Charlie is. An exact example of that, that if you weren't planning on her specifically, then um, she really makes the book in a lot of ways. And I love that accidental organic writing where it just pops up and takes over. And, and we have to also, I should say, um, you know, we said roaring, but what I really admire about this book is the modulation of the pace. There are quiet moments, there are uh, reflective moments the variation of pace is what makes it so outstanding i always think if you have relentless pace from page one to the end in a way (laughs) that just beats you over the head it's the same as having no pace at all what you need to do is vary it and modulate it and have those quiet moments and um, there are plenty of those from all sides and i love it but to go back to what you said about low tech you mentioned past tense which is a book i did a few years ago I did the same thing, partly because I wanted to suggest that the uh, the bad guys were thinking ahead you know, in, a, in a large sense, and they know they can't trust email or cyber communications and all of that. So they do it with physical couriers. A courier who is possibly illiterate learns a message and then flies and delivers the message. And I did that partly because I thought it would be intriguing, but also partly because there's no way Rutscher could get involved in decrypting stuff. You know, that's just not his expertise. I sort of <laughs> I sort of avoided that problem by going the low-tech route.
2: Yeah, I I, found, I I just found it more terrifying because it made made me think that um you know a, any old bunch of people could cause absolute havoc because the security services, even if they're right on the top of their game, they can't be on top of, uh, you know, a group of a dozen or so people who just want to cause a bit of mayhem Uh, if they haven't got a website, if they're not using phones, if they're not sending emails, how on earth, you know, is it possible to track them? So that just felt inherently more scary. So the, the messages that come in, Via news, via uh, the typewriter, and then there are other exchanges by leave, leaving messages in the newspaper. You know the way it used, to, like it's nineteen forty-seven or it's nineteen fifty, yeah. uh, or something like that. I just thought, well, you know, maybe I was hoping that that would be more terrifying than than the
0: high tech It reverses it to a sort of earlier and more elemental era, and it is all the more terrifying for it. And talking of email, we've got there are two questions came in by, by email that i particularly want you to answer because they lead to another subject which the first question is does simon listen to music when writing if so classical or pop
2: the answer to that is i th- i would i'm actually going to quote you lee because I, I think you said it and i think you said it on this podcast because i'm always i always because the answer is no, I don't write with music on. I, I always want to, and sometimes I start, and then it just gets in the way. And I think the reason is, which you said on this podcast, which is there is a rhythm, even even instrumental music. And I interviewed Max Richter, who who comes up with the most fantastic wordless music. Um, and a, a, a lot of authors I've spoken to write with Max Richter on in the background, and I find that there's something which I think you called, Lee, the kind of the rhythm and structure of music, which gets in the way of the rhythm and structure of a sentence. And the more I thought about that, I thought, yes, absolutely. So unless I'm trying to block out the sound of stuff going on in the street or kids making podcasts elsewhere or just just general noise in, in London, which, in which case I'll use it as, as a kind of a white noise, I think I have to write in silence. Have I quoted you rightly? I mean, I think that's...
0: What yeah, it's... yeah, absolutely right. I mean, I love music. I live for music. I love it. But, but I can't write with it on because it imposes its own rhythm. And, and you, ha- you can't do that. So the second question is, does Simon eat any particular foods or snacks while he <laughs> writes? <laughs> what a... Stri- uh, what, um... Yeah, it is a strange question. And I'll I'll, I'll explain why I think it's strange in a minute. But do you? you I I I desperately
2: wish I had an image as evocative as yours of, you know, a gallon of coffee an hour, um, (laughs) a a, a very (laughs) Spartan room... Uh, a screen with with just one file in it which you've you know you've got rid of the last one you're starting a new one well this is this is in the old days when it was just you know just, just you I don't know what the new uh, system is but I wish I wish I had a system like like that but I I think in general no the only I might have tea and coffee as a as a break just to stand up and walk around uh, and try and get my back working again, and not to hurt too much. So I think I use I use it only as punctuation. Really, end of a chapter. I'll do another few, another few pages. Then I'll go and get another cup of tea and a, and a bun or something like that. But in jet, but whilst I'm at the computer, absolutely not.
0: Yeah, I'm the same. I would uh, in the afternoon at about four o'clock when it was time for the sort of fourth or fifth pot of coffee of the day, I would allow myself three biscuits, oatmeal and raisin cookies, um, just for a sort of mid-afternoon fuel. But the reason why I'm interested in questions like that is, years ago I was on an author panel with a couple of other authors, one of whom, I think his name was Stephen White, and his day job was as, as a psychiatrist. And I said, why do people ask those questions? And he said, they're looking for permission to fail. In other words, they they are, and I'm not saying the people that sent in these specific questions are, but generally speaking, people that ask those questions are struggling writers who are not really getting anywhere, and they want to seek out the reason why. And they think, oh, well, Simon Mayo listens with no music, so that's the reason. Or he eats Snickers bars and I eat Mars bars. That's the reason. Uh, It's it's some kind of deep seeking of a, a reason why they're not making it. And I think there's an
2: element of, even though that they know that the answer is no, they're looking for a formula. They're looking for a, if this works for you, then maybe it can work for me. Maybe, I think that's still part of it, which is why every author ever has always said, there is no right way to write a book. You know, you, you might want to write through the night. You might just want to do first thing in the morning. You might drink gallons of coffee. You might drink whiskey. You might, uh, smoke a hundred number six before lunch. I don't know, whatever, you know, whatever it is that works for you. So I think, I think there's an element of either they're looking for failure or maybe that's, maybe that's secreted and hidden in their desire for success. They think they're looking for success, but actually they're looking for excuses to fail. Anyway, this is very, this is very wise.
1: Um, I, I want to ask you a question, Simon, that um way it it slightly informs what I was talking about before about this being personal. Is that news is at the centre of this book. And that right, I'm gonna read there's a line very early on where um Uh, You're talking about, uh, so basically, the, the terror attack has just happened. And as always happens in these, when this kind of things happen, is you have people sort of, you know, obviously, turn on the BBC or turn on Sky News or CNN, or whatever else. And I I just found this... As soon as I read this, I underlined it. Um, It said, In the absence of anything new to focus on, the screens and airwaves overflowed with a dizzying array of fools and liars. Femi resolved to avoid them all. And (laughs) I... Right. So I I saw that and I thought, Oh, my goodness. There speaks someone who's worked on a breaking news channel like Five Live. Well, bluntly you know, a breaking news story happens. So of course, you have to talk about it. The problem is, of course, is that information is very scarce just after, a, a, a for example, a terror attack has happened. Yeah. Nobody knows anything. But you have to fill the airwave because this is the only thing people want to talk about. Consequently, you have a lot of people talking about something and saying very little.
2: Yes, the, the dizzying array of fools and liars is certainly something which came about... It wasn't really a specific criticism of... Um, it was more of a, a comment about rolling news as opposed to yeah. uh, anyone who I've previously worked for. Um, I would say because you definitely get... Because a story is so important, we haven't got a new angle. Let's get someone in who doesn't really know that much, but maybe they know about the fashion involved or something like that. And it's certainly part of, part of fame is disconnect with... Um, her employers and news in general, when she sees it all into rolling news, when you've got something that's new to say, fine. If you haven't got anything new to say, do something else. And I did, uh, I was doing a program for Five Live uh, and there was, and it was a Friday afternoon and there was a, uh, there was a very, very nasty, fatal uh, train crash. And we all knew that it was very, very bad, but we couldn't say that it was that bad because it hadn't been officially announced. And I saw through the glass a furious argument between my editor of the day and his boss. And the boss had come in and say, you have to roll with this story, which means basically junk everything that you were planning to do and just tell this story. And my editor was basically shouting back, we haven't got the journalists there. We haven't got enough experts. We cannot roll with it now because we don't have enough to sustain it. So, and i think this this dispute is still used in uh, in interview boards for journalists you know who was right mm. but i think mm. it's that it's that it's that moment where in uh, in rolling news where they've got nothing new to say so once they've repeated it they were going in and they're just you know the fools and the liars I've are there so yes those,
0: i've been one of those fools and liars uh, my sixth book called without fail obviously a fictional thriller about an attempted assassination on the vice president and I was due to promote it in Holland. So I get on the plane and I'm flying to Holland. And while I'm in the air, a Dutch, this, however long ago, this been 20 years possibly, a Dutch politician had been assassinated. And that was the worst outrage in Dutch politics for hundreds of years. It totally shocked the nation. And it did exactly what you said. It set every single outlet into rolling, breaking news. So I landed... In Amsterdam, I'd I'd taken off a thriller writer who had this book about a a fictional assassination. I landed in Amsterdam, an expert, and I was, (laughs) instead of doing the feature stuff that I thought I was going to be doing, I was taken straight to news studios and introduced uh, an assassination expert from America. What did we do wrong? (laughs) All this kind of stuff. I've been that guy, you know, with nothing to say.
2: I know, but and it's a, it's a heart sink moment, isn't it? Because you think I'm not, I'm really, really not here. I can't. I don't really know that. I can tell you about my novel. I can tell you why you know why I wrote it, and some things about what Reacher is up to uh, here and there. But I know. So I, I. So there is certainly that element of I've been in that studio. I've tried to think what the next question could possibly be. Um, Aware that the next question could be your last, because if you ask something that is incorrect, or if you, if your tone is wrong, then people will not like it. And this is before social media was this hue and cry that it is at the moment. But so yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I do think you know the people that, that run Rolling News, they're great people, but just sometimes when they're when they're rolling, you know, thinking, okay, it's time to stop.
0: Yeah, and that stuff disappears as well. I mean, I remember after 9-11 and all of this kind of thing in exactly the same context. I can remember things being said that now you can't find anymore. You can't trace. It's it sort of cleaned up afterward.
2: Yes, in fact, I, and I was on air for, for 9-11, and I still, I mean, this is and this is not a conspiracy or anything. God help us, No. But there were reports of car bombs going off in Washington, and I and I have never found what the source of that story was. But we, I was reading out any piece of paper that was handed to me, and everything, obviously the towers and the and the Pentagon, all of that stuff, we were explaining and describing. And part of my uh, huge admiration for journalists comes from uh, moments like that when they're when they're reporting, you know, a great danger and threat to themselves. But then occasionally there's what what happened who said that there were car bombs going off in washington where did that come from i've just had an idea maybe i'll write that i'll do that as the next book
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> and well i think that feeds into into your book being this love letter to journalists because in those in those massive events you uh, this might well be known by the public but my instinct is sometimes it's not is that and both of us have worked in in newsrooms and um, you were often getting those kind of reports coming in, which, particularly on on a day like nine eleven, where things were happening that we had not imagined before. That if you suddenly get a piece of paper in front of you that says, "And now there are car bombs going off in Washington," the part of your brain is going, "Well, that figures," because nothing else has made sense so far today. So I'm, I, you know, so so this this is probably part of what of what is happening right now, and therefore. The, the role of the journalist and the role of, of Femi and, and her colleagues to be able to filter out what is, what doesn't make sense and, and make sure that the, the stories that their agency and that they are going to stand by are are the ones that that, that, that they can stand up. How difficult yeah. that is. And I, 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 my, my instinct is having, you know, social media has been great in many ways, but the one there are several concerns that people will have about social media. The one that I have is the ease with which you see the um, the, the trend of lazy journalist, which you have no idea how much work goes into putting together a well-put-together a, a well article, be that in news or be that in sports or whatever else. And well...
2: I yeah. I th- I think that um I when I because when I went to Five Live, I was the outsider. I was I was the you know the fly by night DJ who'd just come in from Radio One. What did he know about anything? So I felt I was very much the outsider. So so when I'm uh when I'm writing about journalism and journalists, I, I still think of myself as as the outsider. And Famey, I, I what I'm hoping is that journalists look at Famey and they think, yes. Hopefully, there's some of me in that. I mean, it's sort of loosely based on a, a woman who was attached to to my program called Nita Mann, who mm. uh, is no longer with us, sadly. But she uh, she was spiky and arch and waspish and funny and super bright and very difficult to get on with. Um, and so I, I followed her around a bit on uh, on some uh, OB. So she would be. I mean, she she unfortunately has passed, but. She would be really surprised the fact that she had any impact on me at all. But anyway, I was, I was looking when I was constructing Femi and trying to think: how is she going to work? How is she going to operate? What is her instinct? How is she going to tell this story? Um, it was it was Nita Mann who I um, who I went back and, and thought about. So it's a, it's a very loose, it's a very loose inspiration, but it's sort of pegged to the work of a, of a proper journalist.
0: Well, this is uh, my podcast now. And so, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> I'm looking at the clock. I have 17 seconds left. So, <laughs> is that not it? I just want to emphasize that uh, what it, the Knife Edge, this is a great, great thriller. Uh, it's a love letter to journalism, news, truth, as we've said, and Coventry Cathedral. It is out uh, on August the 20th anybody who reads it is going to have a thrill ride and a little bit of nostalgia for how the world used to be just a few short months ago. Um, So that is my recommendation for this week. I've I've read 162 Booker Prize books this year. And uh, so I'm recommending Knife Edge by Simon (laughs) Mayo. May not win the Booker, but it will give you a damn good time for the couple of days it takes you to read it. Blimey. That was the most. (laughs) That
2: was an astonishing hour, Lee. I can only, um, I can only thank you really for giving us.
0: Oh, it's a real pleasure. uh, I was saying to Matt how sorry I am that we're not actually face to face, and uh, let's hope we are next time around.
2: This is my passing thought. When I am my parting thought, even I, I just went up to the post office and there were some idiots mucking around. Uh, outside and I was kind of waiting outside thinking because I'm still a little bit nervous about going into these into Mm. some shops and I had had a mask on and because I knew that we were going to do this conversation I was the first thought that came into my head was Reacher would wear a mask
0: yeah he totally would of course he would Um, it's just plain common sense and it, it is driving me crazy over here well, Lee, um, uh, I,
2: I certainly hope that uh, that we can that we can meet again, and uh, hopefully in the really swanky studio, and we'll we'll get a pint of coffee for you, maybe and, and for your brother <laughs> as well. That's two pints of coffee. Yeah. And,
0: um,
2: and and thank you so much for for playing for playing Paul with this. It 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 means an awful lot, and to have your quote on the front. I mean, my God, that's. Uh, uh, that that kind of the, you know if i didn't mention the quote that was, that was on the cover uh, given that you're doing the podcast but um, but it means it means an awful lot thank you so much